Okay, so we, I would invite you right at this point to get a Bible and open up to the book of Matthew chapter 6. Um, if you don't have one, go ahead and pause this and go get a Bible. Um, and then we can open it up all together to Matthew chapter 6. Um, last week we started looking at what is famously called the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. And what we've been working to answer from God's Word is this. How do we act in prayer when we're often tempted to pray as a last resort or to put prayer at the end of things after we've already done a whole bunch? Um, I don't know about you, but one of the things that a crisis in life usually does to me is it has a way of reminding me, or actually in some cases giving me a more full-bodied understanding that I'm not in control. I can't promise myself tomorrow. I can't guarantee that the toilet paper is going to be on the shelf. I can't guarantee that my retirement fund is going to carry the day. I can't guarantee that I won't get sick. I can't guarantee that those I love and care about won't have hardships in their lives. As much as I want those things not to be the case. And do you know what those thoughts are? Those realizations, those reminders are, they're actually the kindness of God. And you're like, what? Yeah, they actually are. I mean, we looked at the first half last week of what is famously called the Lord's Prayer, and we focused on the awesome character and kingdom of God, our Heavenly Father. And when we start with God, who He is for us in Jesus, our Heavenly Father, other things fall into place. If we understand that God had is a good God, we have one of the greatest comforts of acting in prayer because we get refreshed on who God is and what he can do. And God, because he's a good God, though, he has more for us to pray. He's the kind of God who not only wants us to know who he is, but he wants us to bank on him, to live life in faith because of who he is. He wants us to use all of those thoughts that get hammered into us during a crisis, even the day-to-day -day things of life. He wants those, he uses those to move us to him so that he can show that he can provide for us. So hopefully you've gotten to Matthew chapter 6 this morning and... We're going to read this, all of it together. We're just going to spend part of our time on part of this. So this is Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13 from God's Word. Let's read. Pray then like this, Jesus said. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So God wants to work in our lives. He doesn't want us to see who he is, but he wants us to see how he can provide for us in the day to day. And there are three things that are required for us to walk with God in life. Three necessities we need God to provide in order for us to be able, from a human perspective, to do His will. 
in order to obey him, in order to realize that we can't guarantee the things in our lives. But we can look to him who's the guarantee. We can look to him and see him provide and see him bring about life in our lives. So we're going to take this verse by verse today, just as we did last week, through verses 11 through 13. So let's jump in here. So the first verse, verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. You know, it's great. God wants us to pray for provision. One thing this prayer helps us admit and express is that we're dependent people. We pray our Father in heaven, and in so doing, we're admitting that we're not God, and we need him. And we, when we pray, give us, we're praying that we need him to provide us food. Provide food? You might think, have you seen my chest freezer, Aaron? Have you seen it after all that's happened? Well, no, I haven't seen your freezer, but... We need to recognize and remember that what's in your chest freezer, what's in your fridge, what's on your plate each day, what's even in your hand in a book called the Bible is the providing grace of God. And it is a grace because if we didn't know Jesus, we would think that we, of ourselves, of our own ingenuity, of our own smarts, our own stick to or by some human cause, got food on the table, or that we were in ultimate control of getting it on the table. And actually, that's some of the rationale behind why people are emptying grocery store shelves at this point. In some ways, this problem is a problem unique to more financially well-off countries. People in the third world may pray this prayer, give us this day our daily bread with more fervency than we do. Because they're closer to the raw reality. But I think we're being drawn back into that. This can easily happen anywhere. This is, it's not, it's not just by our own selves that food is given to us, whether physical or spiritual. Because we've been actually told a lie that if we just work hard enough or get the right job, we'll be able to put food on the table. And you know what lies are? Lies are usually almost truth. Almost right. Because there is some truth to if we work hard enough and we get the right job, we'll be able to put food on the table. I mean, the Apostle Paul said in, in 1 Thessalonians, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. But if that's as far as it goes, then we've been given the padlock without the key. And the key is that as Deuteronomy 8 verse 18 says, it is the Lord who gives you the power to get wealth. And for Matthew chapter 5 verse 45 says, he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And in that sense, we are God's answering to our prayer. He gives us the ability to produce by working, the ability to gather food 
But God's the one ultimately doing the providing. And that's a wonderful grace, church. We are freed from the burden of having to be our own God. We are free to admit reality that God is God and we're not our own providers. We're free to admit our neediness instead of trying to put on the burden that we weren't supposed to bear. And we're freed to trust God as the God who will meet our needs, who will give us this day our daily bread. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily, necessarily that he'll give us the, the estate inheritance dumped into our Roth IRA or give us lobster and steak as our daily bread. It doesn't mean he won't, but that has really has nothing to do with what this passage is talking about and what this prayer is for. This is for our needs, our daily bread. One thing in praying this way is that it challenges our assumptions of what we need each day. And it challenges our faith to allow God to provide what and how he's going to provide. Because sometimes... What we, don't, what we don't need is physical food. Sometimes we don't need physical food. More than, the, more than that, what we need is God's word. More what we need is Jesus himself, who called himself the bread of life who comes down from heaven. So it's a both and. Oh yes, we need physical food. But if we aren't depending and looking to Jesus, we'll waste the energy that the physical food gives us on things that don't seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. See, praying this way, give us this day our daily bread, is a vulnerable spot to be in. Or at least it feels that way. Because we don't always have the most objective and best perspective of what we need and when we need it. But while it may feel more vulnerable, it's actually a more realistic and more secure position. Because again, we're not depending on ourselves, who are finite, who are feeble, who are frail, who are vulnerable. But we're relying on God, who lavishly provides for us, who is our Father in heaven, who is unchanging, immovable, unshakable. And he loves his children. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, did you hear that word? One of the words I used. Give us. When Jesus tells us to pray in this passage, he says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, who's he talking to? Who's he, who's he talking about when he says, give us? Maybe I'm the only one who's prayed this way and prayed this prayer this way. But I've often prayed, give us this day, or go, go down through this, give us this day, forgive us as we forgive, lead us not into temptation. I was usually thinking about actually myself. What I was really praying was, give me this day. Forgive me as I forgive. Lead me not into temptation. 
Am I the only one who thought this thought this way? <laughs> I well, maybe I ha maybe I am, but I don't think so. And in one sense, praying that way is not necessarily wrong. Because when we say us or we, we put ourselves as part of the us, part of the we. But this should give us a little bit of pause in considering this prayer because it's not just me. Or Jesus would have used the word me. Who's the us? So look up at verse 9. Okay, Our Father. Who's God the Father of? Well, Jesus, yes, but there is at least one part of this prayer that definitely doesn't apply to him. So he's, who's he teaching? He's teaching disciples. And true disciples are those who believe in him. So, and what, what's another term that we use for disciples who believe in Jesus, who trust in him, who are God's children? The church! Anyone and everyone who trusts in Jesus as the, as the Christ, the Son of God, is part of the church, the family of God. That's the us in this passage of this prayer. So when we are individually praying, our Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debtors, lead us not into temptation, we are praying that our own needs would be met and that the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ, would, their needs would be met across the world. And you know what that does when we think about that, when that shapes how we pray? That reminds us, especially when we are in a time of uncertainty, when daily bread may be a worry, that we're part of something bigger part of something bigger that God is writing, part of a bigger family that's in this together. And with a heavenly father who is more than able to take care of what we need for today. Now, we don't just have physical needs. As I mentioned, this, may, this is not just physical food. This can be spiritual food. We have spiritual needs as the people of God. We have need for spiritual food. And we have need for a couple other spiritual components here that he, he, he has us pray for in this passage. So let's jump down to verse 12 now. He says, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. God wants us to pray for forgiveness. Well, let's ask the question first. <laughs> what is forgiveness? I mean, we don't have a lot of time. So we're going for a really simple definition today, a definition with its ground in Scripture, because there's a whole bunch of definitions out there. Forgiveness is when someone sins against God, whether directly against him or indirectly by sinning against another person who is made in the image of God. And God, out of his own free will, chooses not to hold that person's sins against them. And we who are made in the image of God. When someone wrongs us, we can choose to forgive. Not holding someone accountable for the wrongs they've done against us. There's a lot more to it than that in Scripture, but not less. So what is the forgiveness that's meant here, though? 
Is this a prayer for salvation? I mean, if let me put it this way. If it was a prayer for salvation, this prayer would actually be contradicting everything that Scripture teaches about, of salvation in Jesus by faith. Because God never tells us that we have to have forgiven everyone who has sinned against us in order for us to receive his salvation. He doesn't tell us, clean up your act first and then come to me. No, that's not, what he, that's not how God has designed salvation to work. It's a free gift of grace to be received by faith. This prayer, remember, is for those who have their trust already in Jesus, who now have God as their father because of Jesus doing the work of forgiving their sins and reconciling them back to God. So in other words, by the time we get to this part of the prayer, we are praying this in faith. Our sins are already forgiven so that we can be saved. So what does it mean? Forgive us our debts, which is, which is another way of saying sins in this context. Well, I want to jump over near the end of the Bible to the letter of 1 John. And what he writes in there is, actually, is really helpful for understanding this. John is writing to believers, and he says this in 1 John chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Isn't that kind of weird? If we trust in Jesus as the Christ, the Savior, the Lord, the Son of God, and we are saved from our sin and saved to God, How is it that John is writing to believers and Jesus is teaching his believing disciples that they should pray, forgive us our debts, our trespasses, our sins? Simply put, that means believers still sin. <laughs> this should come as a shock to no one. Okay, <laughs> We still mess up. We still do what we shouldn't do. And we still don't do what we should do. And what's the difference between us and someone who doesn't trust Jesus? Trusting Jesus. It's that simple and that complex. Because what flows from trusting Jesus, from having salvation in his name, from having the promised Holy Spirit come into our lives when we trust him, is that we ask for God, we ask God for forgiveness of our sins. And we turn away from our sins and we progressively by the Holy Spirit's power, we, actually, we progressively sin less, sin less, and walk in Christ-likeness more. So we pray for forgiveness because we are still works in progress, and we don't want anything to get in the way of our relationship with God. And sin gets in the way. So when we ask for forgiveness... We are keeping short accounts with God. Because if we understand that these are sins that we still commit daily, then we understand why this comes in a prayer when it says, give us this day our daily bread. And then it goes on to forgive us our sins, our debts, as we forgive those who are our debtors. 
God has already sent his son to save us from our sins. He's not sending him again to die on the cross. That's done. But the best relationship with God is one where we keep short accounts, where we're honest with him. And it reminds us that we need mercy, daily mercy, mercy that Lamentation says is new every morning because we're still growing. And as we grow, actually, we become more aware of the ways that we need mercy day by day. Forgive us our debts. But then look at this condition on this for, of this forgiveness of God. This is really important. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Hmm. So let me ask you, has someone wronged you recently or ever? So how did you respond when they apologized? Or how are you responding if they haven't? What we need to see is that throughout the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, which is where this prayer is found, Jesus is aiming to expose one thing in the, in the people that he's talking to, including us. He's aiming to expose our hearts. Aiming to expose that inner, those inner motives, those desires, those thoughts and emotions. And those things can get churned up when someone wrongs us. So when someone wrongs us, are we right to be angry? Well, the answer is yes. Injustice has been done when, you, we, wrong, when we wrong someone, when someone wrongs us. We should, and we should never consider sin against us as no big deal or it's okay. We probably mean extremely well when we say that. But God does not minimize sin. Sin keeps people away from him. And he sent his son to die on a cross to take away sin. But here's where we have a choice to make. When someone wrongs us, do we stay angry? Do we allow that root of bitterness, vindictiveness, or a vengeful attitude to take root in our hearts and it actually in that moment it becomes us sinning when we've been sinned against making it two wrongs or because of faith in Jesus because of his transforming work in us and a new heart do we take a lavish posture of forgiveness always ready to extend it because that's how God has acted toward us. Jesus has us pray for forgiveness that matches our heart posture towards those who are our debtors, those who sin against us. And when we are a church that trusts that Jesus is as John, 1 John 1, 9 says, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are a church that receives forgiveness and has forgiveness ready to be poured out upon those who come into our debt. 
It's a beautiful thing when that happens. In us and through us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors. Thirdly, Jesus instructs us to go one step deeper. Not only to pray for forgiveness in our failures. When we have sinned against him, forgive us our debts. But he wants us to pray to help. He wants us to pray and he wants, us to, wants to help us trust him when the possibility of failure comes. And that's verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God wants us to pray that he would protect us. God is a loving father, and loving fathers, they protect their children. Now, this is a very important understanding that we need to have of what God protects us from. Because we need to understand what temptation is and what it isn't. So we, let's start with what it isn't, okay? Temptation, and maybe you know this already, temptation is not sin. It's not. Jesus himself was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness directly by Satan. And what does the scripture say about Jesus in Hebrews 4 verse 15? We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Temptation is not sin. And some of us need to hear this right now because we have been tempted and we are believing that in some way. And the evil one is coming to try to deceive us into thinking that we are under condemnation for being tempted. A beautiful woman comes on, our, on the TV who's not our wife. Someone didn't put their dishes in the sink for the 500th time. Or your brother or your sister asks, can I please play with that? It can be almost anything and everything where temptation can show up. You see, temptation isn't sin, but it's a crossroads. It's a crossroads where we have the opportunity to either glorify God or glorify ourselves. And each of us, not all temptations are equal for each of us. In those moments that I described, you may not be tempted, you may not be tempted at all by a beautiful woman showing up on the TV screen who's not your wife. But you might struggle greatly in responding to it in a godly way to someone who's left their dishes on the table for the 500th time. Or you may not struggle with sharing toys. You may not be tempted there. But you might be tempted to cheat on your taxes. And some of you, you might not be tempted to cheat on your taxes at all, but you might be tempted and struggle to skip some much-needed time in God's Word today. You see, what temptations are is they are crossroads. 
There are opportunities for us to either glorify God or glorify ourselves. And they're aimed at where our hearts are inclined to take neutral or even good things and twist them into God things, things to worship ourselves. You know, you notice that we're never tempted by stuff that we don't really care about or we don't particularly like. But here's also the kicker. God never wants us to take the wrong road when temptation comes. That's why he has us pray this way. He instructs us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, Father. Temptation may come, but don't let us go into it. And do you know what kind of light shines from the church when her people don't enter into temptation, but choose to glorify God? It's beautiful. People are treated honorably. People are cared for. People are loved. People stop fighting. Or they fight alongside one another rather than against one another. Lead us not into temptation. So we pray not to be led into temptation, and we pray to be delivered. But deliver us from evil. From what? From evil. Now here we have to stop, because the translation might not be correct. It's more likely the evil one. Because if we look throughout the rest of Scripture, we have to stop and categorically state that God never promises to deliver us from suffering, from pain, from sorrow, from hurt in this part of eternal life. He doesn't. Even if they come from evil places, he doesn't. Joseph trusted him. Joseph trusted God and was sent, was sold into slavery and sent into prison in Egypt on false charges. God doesn't tell us that he will always deliver us from those things. He may deliver us sometimes, sure. I praise God he does. But anyone who's been a Christian for long enough knows that he doesn't promise deliverance from everything bad. He promises that my grace is sufficient for you. Those things may be evilly done to us, but that's not what God may deliver us from. So what are we praying here? Deliver us from evil, or the evil one. We can certainly pray that we would be delivered from evil circumstances, but we should regularly pray that we would be delivered from the evil one. We as the people of God have an adversary. Scripture makes that clear. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says this, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's the one through whom temptation is sent our way. And he wants to lead us into it, to devour us. He wants us to choose the same road that Adam and Eve took, where they disbelieved God and believed a lie instead. 
But God wants us to trust Jesus, the second Adam. He wants to deliver us from the one who seeks to destroy us when we're tempted. Who wants, who, the one who doesn't want us to run to God, who doesn't want us to ask for forgiveness when we sin. When, not if. So we pray that God delivers us from him. And God is, as 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says, God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. When we pray this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. We are praying that we, alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ, will take the way of escape. That we will resist the devil, as 1 Peter 5 goes on to say. And that we would bank on God's promises that when we resist him, he will, the devil will flee from us. One of the ways we resist him is to continue in prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So God calls us to pray for three huge needs we have. He prays, he, asks, he calls us to pray that God will be our guarantee, the one who provides for us, the one who forgives us, who protects us. Now, I've not covered what some of your translations might have or may have as a footnote. You've, if, you're, if you've remembered this a long, long time ago, it was probably there. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. This probably wasn't there in the original writing of the Bible. But given everything that we've looked at, it's true, isn't it? And it reminds us of the reality of this prayer. We as the people of God, those who believe in his son, Jesus the Christ, are not promised tomorrow in a sense. We're not guaranteed to wake up in the morning, to wake up in our beds, to breathe spring air, to talk with our families, to go to work, to play. We don't have the authority to choose what happens tomorrow. But in another sense, Christians are the only people who are promised a better tomorrow. Why? Because the kingdom and the power and the glory is God's. And he has promised that he has begun it. Your kingdom come, said the king. And he has promised to use his power to make all things new. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he has promised to glorify his name. Hallowed be your name. And he has promised his church that he will come back for her. He has promised that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we do not live as though praying this to God is the last thing on our list. We live praying as we live like this. 
So would you join me in praying this? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.